Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Basic Trust, The Soul's Key to Being. It was given by Peter Cohen on May 28, 2022, via Zoom. Peter was the drummer for the Western Bell rock band, Liars, Gods, and Beggars, from 1988 to 1994. Since then, he has followed the non-dual thread of life in locations including Alaska and Idaho, and in activities as a musician and nurse. In this talk, he speaks about considerations that are challenging to ego, the interdependent arising of phenomena and the rare condition of implicit trust in the universe. Later in the discussion, he speaks about the illusion of control that can be recognized in so many ways, such as the difficulty he had in getting onto Zoom to give the talk. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Peter Cohen. I wanted to start off by saying that this topic, basic trust, is difficult. It's difficult in the sense that it's confrontational, at least for me. And you'll see what I mean hopefully, as we go along. It's definitely on my edge, my personal edge. And I think it's probably on the edge for most human beings, given what human beings are. I debated whether to read a lot of quotes from this book. I got the name Basic Trust from the book by A.H. Almas called Facets of Unity. And he describes what basic trust is in the first few pages much better than I ever could. And I'm going to risk reading extensive quotes here from him. Then it will be a springboard to how I want to present where this goes, at least where it's gone for me. So if you'll bear with me, I hope this will be interesting enough. I think his wording is beautiful. So Almas talks, first of all, about the essential ingredient for being on the path, this won't come as any news to you probably, to let go of all beliefs, every single belief, any and all beliefs about self, about other, about the world, all beliefs, period. And this requires, in his words, jumping into the abyss. And other teachers, of course, have used their own terminology for this leaping into the unknown. In order to jump into the abyss, the essential requirement is this thing that he calls basic trust. And now I'm going to read some descriptions of basic trust, and then I'll go on to the ramifications of that. So here's what Almas has to say. If this jumping into the abyss is easy, one's transformation tends to happen easily. But if this letting go of past identities is difficult, Past identities, another name for beliefs, 
If that's difficult, very painful, or excessively fraught with fear, one will tend to hold on to the old, staying aligned with one's ego. What makes the difference is the presence of a certain kind of trust that we call basic trust. It is an unspoken, implicit trust that what is optimal will happen. The sense that whatever happens will ultimately be fine. It is the confidence that reality is ultimately good, that nature, the universe, and all that exists are of their very nature good and trustworthy, that what happens is the best that can happen. Basic trust is a non-conceptual confidence in the goodness of the universe, an unquestioned, implicit trust that there is something about the universe and human nature and life that is inherently and fundamentally good, loving, and wishing us the best. This innate and unformulated trust in life and reality manifests as a willingness to take that plunge into the abyss. He goes on, basic trust is experienced as an unquestioned sense of safety and security that is intrinsic to the way you act and live. When deeply present, this trust is so much a part of the fabric of your soul that it is not something you think about. It is preconceptual, preverbal, pre-differentiation. Furthermore, it is so basic that events and circumstances in your life cannot disrupt it. For this reason, basic trust is different from our usual psychological sense of trust. Our ordinary confidence in people and situations is highly conditional and dependent on familiarity and reliability. Painful experiences or personal betrayals can disrupt our trust in the external and internal elements of our life. So ordinary trust is of little value for stepping into the unknown because those elements are always subject to change. Basic trust, on the other hand, is not a trust in something, some person, or some situation, and so it is not readily diminished by life circumstances. Instead, it gives you an implicit orientation toward all circumstances that allows you to relax and be with them. You feel in your bones that you are and will be okay even if the events at the moment are disappointing or painful or even completely disastrous. Consequently, you live your life in such a way that you naturally jump into the abyss without even conceptualizing that you will be okay since you have the implicit trust that the universe will take care of you. Your life itself becomes a spiritual journey in which you know that if you stop trying, stop efforting, stop grasping, stop holding on to people, objects, and beliefs, things will be okay. They will turn out for the best. Basic trust is difficult to discuss because doing so makes it explicit while it is fundamentally implicit. Those who have it never think about it, never question it, never even know that there is such a thing. When they see someone who doesn't have it, they wonder why he is having such a difficult time why he doesn't know that things will be fine. In those who have never lost basic trust, there is an innocence. Only when you have lost it and go through consciously developing it again, do you understand what it's like not to have it. Basic trust 
gives us the capacity to surrender, the capacity to let go, the capacity to jump into the unknown. With it, you don't need assurances that things are going to be okay because you implicitly know things are going to be okay. It isn't a trust in something in particular since it is preconceptual. It is prior to your differentiated ideas about what you trust. So basic trust is even beyond trusting in God because feeling that you trust in God means that you already have a concept of God. Are you all confronted yet? <laughs> Almost nobody has this or possesses this basic trust. It's on a continuum depending on the degree of trauma you experience in your life, in your early life in particular. Even those who had a relatively benign infancy and childhood lack some level of basic trust. Like I say, it's a continuum, and some people have more of a taste of it than others. Almost nobody has it at the depth that Almas here is describing. In fact, one definition you could use for enlightenment is having perfect basic trust. All the strategies of ego to maintain its sense of separate existence as an independent entity are, by definition, evidence of lack of basic trust. And here's another quote from Almas. The disturbance of basic trust is a significant factor in ego development because the perspective of ego is diametrically opposed to the sense of basic trust. The ego's perspective arises out of a lack of distrust. It is based on distrust, on paranoia, on fear, on the conviction that you're not going to be adequately taken care of and that the universe is not there to hold and take care of you in the ways that you need. This conviction causes you to believe that you have to engage in all kinds of manipulations and games to get your needs met and to make things work out. All the egoic strategies that many of you have studied can be boiled down to ways that the ego tries to compensate for this lack of basic trust. Almas takes the approach of using the Enneagram to describe the various ways that the ego tries to compensate the lack of basic trust. As we all know, that's just one way to slice the pie. But it's useful. I found this book to be very useful. Again, about the way the ego tries to compensate. I'm reading again from Almas. It is the activity of the ego which does not trust that being or God is doing everything, will do everything, and if one surrenders to it, its optimizing thrust will spontaneously deliver us. This striving embodies egoic hope as opposed to the flow that expresses the optimism of holy hope. Holy hope is a whole other consideration that we won't get into here. But you can get a sense of it. It's the opposite of the usual kind of hope. Egoic hope makes us react and disconnect from our experience, while holy hope makes us relax and open up to the unfolding that is carrying us harmoniously to fulfillment. One last quote from Almas. You might be asking, well, how do you develop basic trust if you lack it, which most of us do? And the one clue here is that the solution, as Alma says, 
is not to try to develop it or try to stop striving egoically, as this simply becomes another act of striving, striving for basic trust or satisfaction or happiness, however you want to put it, is simply another form of striving. To stop striving, we need only to fully realize the truth of the situation. This means we must first see how striving is constantly manifesting in our life and then see the reactive and defensive quality of it, how it is a response to our sense of helplessness. Ceasing to strive happens through accepting your helplessness. This helplessness is existential because in reality, you are not one who can do. This is the innate helplessness of the human being. In traditional religious terminology, awareness of this helplessness is described as humility, the recognition that only God is almighty. So recognizing your helplessness is, in a sense, recognizing that God is the one who is all-powerful and all-doing. This is why many spiritual traditions emphasize recognizing, feeling, and accepting your smallness and helplessness. This could be threatening, or it might be quite comforting to see that everything is being done regardless of you and that things are happening in a harmonious way can be quite a relief. If, on the other hand, you are trying to preserve your sense of identity, then the thought of giving up the sense of yourself as someone who does can be quite threatening. So the understanding and acceptance of what he calls objective helplessness is an entry into surrender to being. So for me, this has led and also has dovetailed in terms of my study of what we call non-duality to a whole consideration of cause and effect. If we imagine ourselves as the doer and lack the humility to realize that we're not the doer, this cause and effect thing can be thought of personally in terms of you as the doer making an effect happen in the world, or it can be seen globally in terms of how the entire universe works, the whole Newtonian view, the mechanical view of the universe. You apply a force here and you get an effect there, and it's predictable on that level. But in reality, that paradigm of cause and effect is an illusion. And there are many ways to view that. The view of what causes any effect, and this is my own words here, is one of the primary indicators of the lack or the absence of basic trust. It is one of the most fundamental ways that the ego reinforces its view that it is real, a separate entity that it is the author of its decisions, choices, and actions and is therefore responsible for the outcomes that result. And that leads to either pride that you did it right or guilt that you didn't do it right, or other people did it right or the other people didn't do it right. So blaming and shaming also is tied up with the whole paradigm of cause and effect. In personal terms, it's yourself as the author of what happens and Globally, it's the sense that what happens in one place in the world has an effect that's predictable in another place in the world. There's a non-theistic way of looking at that. It's often talked about in non-dual circles, and that is to talk about the totality, 
that the cause of any one thing is everything else. And if there's only one thing, and it's not a thing, if there's only one no thing in the universe, then anything within that one thing, any change that happens within that one thing is going to affect the whole everything. Is that clear? <laughs> she shakes her head no. <laughs> is it sort of the one body idea that, that we're all one body? Everything, not just people, everything, people, <clears throat> animals, rocks, this desk, your computer, everything is that thing, is that one nothing. Thing. And it all works in an unimaginable unity that can't be conceived. It is so beyond conception, except I have a real sense of it. Anything that happens in the totality cannot happen in isolation because it's joined to everything else. In essence, it's all one thing. So any change happening anywhere is happening everywhere. <laughs> it's happening every place, everywhere, all the time. But if you don't understand it in terms of non-duality, there's another way of viewing it. The Buddhists call it the interdependent co-arising of phenomena. And it's the same thing. All phenomena co-arises interdependently at once. So we could talk in Buddhist terms, and we may come back to that if you want, but there's another way of slicing it, and that's theistically. I had a teacher who would talk about the ordainer. The Sufis call it the beloved, or it's been called Shakti, the creative or the manifest aspect of the non-manifest all, the Shiva, which is unmanifest, but the Shakti is the manifest expression of Shiva, which is what makes things happen. It's not you that's doing it. It's this everything. It's this Shakti. Ken Wilber calls it Eros, which I like. It's a creative force or element in creation. So there's the non-theistic totality, the Buddhist interdependent co-arising phenomena, the theistic beloved or the ordainer, and then in physics and quantum mechanics, it's called entanglement. Some of you may be familiar with that subatomic particle, light years on one side of the universe, immediately, without time, affects a subatomic particle light years away on the other side of the universe. And actually, when this first was proposed, it was only theoretical. And so Einstein had trouble believing it. He called it spooky action at a distance. But recently, this is beyond me, how they ever managed to construct experiments that actually proved it. They proved it to be so. This spooky action at a distance happens. And God knows how they proved this. <laughs> to me, it actually makes a lot of sense that there is this interdependent co-arising of phenomena. I don't make my heart beat. I'm not conscious of doing any of that. There's so many things like this all around, but I've identified with something and I think I'm doing something, but am I really? It totally makes sense that there is just one thing happening and every separate individual feels like they are 
causing the things that they cause, but maybe they're not the ultimate doer anyway. But is there some way in which each individual uh, does have responsibility? So if there's just this interdependent force that happens, that creates everything, what is the place of personal responsibility? I mean, I'm sure you have an answer for that, but I'd like to hear it because if it's all whatever happens, then what's the point of working on yourself, of making the effort to be compassionate toward people? I don't have a good answer for it. Non-duality, for me, functions inclusive of the human, not exclusive of it. So there is a role and circumstances for the person to believe that they're acting and that they're doing the action. The trick is always on a deeper level to be in the mood of surrender, knowing that you're playing a game, that you're in this movie. The metaphor of the movie is often used in non-dual circles. I think that when we talk about the teaching, there's some resonance. There's a process that we go through of feeling like we are doing these things, and maybe we have to do them to come to a place when we realize that we're not the doer. Obviously, it it would appear (laughs) that we do. And actually taking responsibility. I mean, this would be what would occur to me. And actually taking responsibility for what we do is part of that process, I would gather. You know, it's a fine line. I don't know where to draw the line between taking responsibility and blaming yourself. My practice is not to take responsibility. And that doesn't mean to excuse myself if I'm being an asshole. The analogy of John Smith playing King Lear, I really like that one. So this guy, he's an actor named John Smith, and he's playing King Lear. And he becomes so immersed in this role where he has trouble with his daughter and he's at war with France and he gets so wrapped up in it and taking responsibility for it and blaming himself and feeling miserable and feeling victimized and everything that King Lear feels that eventually drives him mad, he forgets that he's John Smith. So my practice in regard to taking responsibility is to just keep in mind as best as possible that I'm <laughs> I'm King Lear. No, that I'm John Smith <laughs> and not King Lear. I'm that which is the author of the all. I'm, I'm not Peter because that's just the role in which John Smith has forgotten himself. So people who actually don't forget themselves do act, but they act spontaneously in the moment according to what's wanted and needed in that moment. And it's not a decision they make. It's like one teacher I've been associated with, he gets all these invitations. You know, once a year or twice a year, maybe, he sits down with the people who work at his headquarters and he's got this pile of invitations to do a talk, do a seminar, travel here, travel there. And they go through this stack and this guy just sits there and he, yes, no, yes, no, sure, of course, no, no. 
he doesn't deliberate at all. It's just immediately obvious what thing to commit to, one thing not to. It seems like it's not possible not to do. We're always doing, even if we're remembering that we are consciousness or the all or whatever, we're still doing. And what we're remembering, it seems to me, is an idea of that. We're not actually remembering that. We're remembering a concept of that. If you remember that you're John Smith and not King Lear, or in this case, you're the totality, it's not a concept. Well, you're remembering that you're John Smith, but you're remembering this idea, John Smith. No, you are John Smith. Okay. I mean, really, I mean, it's not an idea, but... So you could say, and people do, that I am the divine, I am God. Well, you have to actually... Well, that's right, but we're not. At the time that we are making that declaration... Or you're saying that you can make that declaration? And it, and no, it's no, it has to be genuine. It has to be honest and real. And until it's the fact for you that it's not an idea, when John Smith realizes who he is, that he's not King Lear, it's just so obvious. And it has to be that obvious, essentially. That's why I like that analogy so much, because for John Smith, when he realizes, when he remembers he's John Smith, it couldn't be more obvious. Is it simply that each of us knows what it means to shift into being out of being a human doing? We all understand what it means to shift immediately with no thought, with no action, to shift into beingness, you know, as distinct from being a human doing, which is to be in the role doing the King Lear thing, being the King Lear and all that. And to me, when I can shift into beingness is when I can access that trust that you've been talking about. It's when I'm in beingness that I'm prior to all the concepts and stuff like that. Yeah. So I'll just to um, maybe spur some other responses here. The entire drama of the ego's compulsive drive for control, which is the result of the absence of basic trust is based on a fundamental illusion about cause and effect. This analogy, the Disneyland car analogy, if you're a kid and you're, well, if you're an adult and you're driving one of these cars at an amusement park and there's a right-hand turn and you turn the steering wheel to the right and you think that you've just turned the car to the right, that you're in control of the car because you turned the wheel to the right and it went to the right. And then... You saw a left-hand turn, and you turn the wheel to the left, and the car turns to the left. You think, oh, I know how to turn this car. I'm in charge of this car. So next time, you want to make a right-hand turn, but the car goes to the left. And you think, well, what's wrong here? I thought I had control of this car. So being a good spiritual student, you go to a weekend workshop about being in control of your life, taking control of your life. And you take this weekend workshop and you feel really good about it. You feel, now I can drive my car. And you go back to the amusement park and you get in the car and you turn the wheel to the right and it goes to the right. You turn the car to the left and it goes to the left. You turn the car to the left again, it goes to the right. And say, oh my God. So the leader of the workshop has an advanced course, right? And you go back and you take the advanced course about how to take control of your life. And it goes on and on. Well, it goes on as long as you want to play that game. 
But that's just another analogy illustrating our lack of control. Yes, we all, I included, I don't exclude myself, often do things and think that I'm doing them. Very often. I thought that I was logging into Zoom tonight, for God's sakes, and it didn't happen, and it didn't happen again, and it didn't happen again. What better lesson could I have that I'm not in control? Zoom is controlled, the God of Zoom. Well, I think that it's useful to remind myself that I am not the doer. But I also feel in the relative world that it's important for me to practice kindness, generosity, and compassion, and to engage with other people and observe my reactions to them and situations. There are teachers who have been, I think you would agree with this, in the state of someone who is as spontaneous as you were describing, maybe resting in that knowledge that we're really an interdependent co-arising resonant with that completely. But those people have recommended often that students who study with them practice in whatever ways have been revealed to them. I mean, it's not like those things are going to get you anywhere, but my understanding is that transformation happens. Some effort is needed to see what's really going on for one, and some heat is necessary in that process. I think ultimately everyone's way is different. There are commonalities. The path has fundamental commonalities that are true for everybody. But in large part, we have to find our own way. And for me, and I think for a lot of people in the West, I have been a striver, driven, compulsively driven to succeed and to accomplish. For me personally, my practice has been one of letting go. This whole thing of faking it till you make it is very problematic for me. I don't think it's been particularly useful for me. So I've come to question that maxim quite profoundly. Well, that's not the same thing that I was saying, I don't think. Practice generosity, compassion, and all that. I mean, that sounds like faking it till you make it. Well, I don't know. I think that if you have a goal in mind, but if there's not a goal in mind, this is just, as in Buddhism, right activity, right livelihood. And when I'm striving in some ways to observe that as best I can and to see that, yes, I am trying to substantiate this idea of myself, haha. My belief is that belief is that that's part of my process being done by a larger force, but filtered through me. And I think that I'm doing it, but it's necessary. So we might disagree. I don't think we're in conflict. I don't think we're disagreeing about the utility of practicing kindness, generosity, and compassion, as long as it's not a goal toward anything. I mean, because I think that we are moved. Genuinely, I mean, how do you discriminate about what's your ego wanting to strive for something and what's the genuine movement of the divine moving through you? I've heard it said that it's all in God's hands, but where is hands? So 
how do you discriminate about who's in control or thinks that they're in control? I think it's a valid question myself. And, you know, just tonight, I mean, this talk is turning out <laughs> to be a nightmare. No, I'm kidding. I'm mixing it up with you, and I hope that's okay. Usually, I really try to let the speaker just... I know, I know you do. ...do their thing, but I'm just, I don't know. I'm moved. No, that's good. That's good. That's fine. To have some dialogue about this. Yeah. No, that's fine. For me, the proof, as it were, that my compulsion or my striving thing has been totally conditioned is how it affected my body, how it affected my health, how I could trace it back to my parents and my upbringing and that whole culture in which I grew up in. There are many, many ways that I can trace that my whole striving thing has been neurotic as hell by and large. Of course, there's been an element in it that I could call pure or genuine or real, but it's been overladen with a whole bunch of conditioned neuroses. So there is a distinction to make between the whole control thing and allowing just being open or surrendered. Well, you know, because you can think that you're open and surrendered, but really you could be kidding yourself and just avoiding the situation. (laughs) Of course, those of us who are logged in tonight, it's a foregone conclusion or assumption that we're kidding ourselves. Yes. And by the way, I don't disagree with what you're saying at all. And I'm not wanting to make a point. Just these perspectives are coming up as you're speaking. About the idea of practice, as I was listening to the discussion between you two, to me, it seemed like the practice implies that there's effort involved because you've encountered a block to exhibiting the characteristic you already have, like you already are a compassionate being, or you wouldn't be trying to be compassionate. So the very word practice implies that you're not faking it, but you have to practice that, though you already are that, or you wouldn't be trying to practice that. Isn't what you're talking about the process of individuation and how it expresses itself? Individuation is real. We are individual aspects of God in some way. And what you're saying, in my opinion, is that, yes, prior to the early traumas, the neuroses, all the things that build up and put a wall between us and our prior condition, That compassion exists innately in every person. It's through the individuation that all of it gets expressed. And so we can't deny that, yes, even though we are one, all as father or however you want to say it, that I, as a human being, have to be true to my individuation. I have to be true to what I was thrown to be and keep walking that walk, which is the suffering part, the separation But it's also how I self-actualize. It's how I come into the beingness that allows me in moments to be prior to the mind, prior to the conditioning, and come from that place, which is, I think, what you're talking about when you talk about trust, faith, all is Father, 
to me, when it really hits ground zero is when I've had something that seemed unfathomable happen in my life that was unbearable on some level. And I have a decision to make in that moment. Am I going to trust the process or am I going to succumb? What is my choice going to be in that moment? And that's when it shows up for me, this idea of trusting the process, trusting the universe. This may be a little sidelight. It's related, but it's something that occurred to me. Maybe a lot of you are familiar with the, um, the fundamentalist Christian idea of intelligent design. On the far, far right, there's something called creationism, which is that God created the world and it took six days and, and on the seventh day he rested and all that. But the creationists have more recently come up with this idea of intelligent design, which I think they came up with in order to feel more modern about it, more contemporary. I know it sounds like I'm going far afield here, but I'm really not. So if you look at natural selection and Darwin's whole theory of, of evolution, it is difficult to account for many of the things we see in nature. An example that Christians often use is the, um, the retina of the eye or the flagella of a microbe, the whippy tail thing. Very difficult to account for how that would develop just purely through natural selection. It's occurred to me that these Christians actually are onto something. It is difficult to account for many, many things that occur in nature just by invoking natural selection. The only flaw I find in intelligent design is the notion of a separate creator figure who orchestrated it separate from the totality. But back to this whole thing of the totality, if you imagine everything is happening all at once in the now, with no time and no space, but just spontaneously now, there is an intelligence behind it. And it's loving, too. That's going back to basic trust. It has an optimal, Almas calls it an optimal thrust to it, that the best thing or the optimal outcome is behind this thing that happens all at once, spontaneously. So it's helped me in terms of my looking at my lack of possession of basic trust to think about the wonders, the jaw-dropping wonder of everything that occurs in nature. If you look at it as just natural selection and evolutionary survival of the fittest and all that, it doesn't really take into account the miracles that are demonstrating an optimizing thrust that's good and that's loving. It doesn't involve an exterior God that's doing it from above. God is that totality, is that whole thing spontaneously creating out of love and out of that optimizing thrust. So that's my little contribution to the whole debate that you often hear between the intelligent designers versus the natural selection people. And all the ostensibly horrible things that happen or that we interpret as being horrible are all part of that and actually optimizing and loving. 
hard to swallow, isn't it? It is for me. But that's what Almas is saying. And all the major dudes, in the words of Steely Dan, that's what they're saying. My personal belief is that the earth is headed for major catastrophic suffering and destruction in just so many spheres. But I do hold that it has an optimizing thrust. It's challenging for me to keep holding that in the face of what I see. Well, that's because we don't have basic trust in the way that you're describing it. Yeah. Mea culpa, yeah. (laughs) I don't know necessarily mea culpa. I don't know that we have to approach it that way from a perspective of guilt. That's just what is. Yeah, yeah. Almost makes it sound like if, if you don't have a somewhat decent nurturing childhood with some sort of safety around you, especially from your mother, that you won't have much of a degree of basic trust. So it's a very kind of conditioned thing. It's it's very mechanistic, it sounds to me. I don't really know that I agree with what Alamos is saying completely explicitly. That's why I started out by saying this is a very confrontative and painful consideration for a lot of us. But it's not insurmountable. I mean, that's what the whole path is about. But to know, to just know that that's what's missing, that's the missing element, basic trust, I find to be useful. Some quotes from major dudes who are saying the same thing here. This is Maya Baba. Trust God completely and he will solve all difficulties. Faithfully leave everything to him, and he will see to everything. Love God sincerely, and he will reveal himself. Here's Swami Ramdas. Do not worry about anything. Have complete trust in God. Whenever changes come in your life, take them that they come by God's will alone. Take to the changes naturally and cheerfully. We are ever under God's care and protection. We are never forsaken. God is all love. We have doubts about this because we are not conscious of his love. Let us know once and for all that he is our sole refuge. And here's Rumi. Trust means you're ready to risk what you currently have. And here's a dude named Lee Lozowick. I'd really, really like you to answer this for yourselves, because if you do not, you're very likely to expend a tremendous amount of time, energy, and resources completely barking up the wrong tree. What is it I trust in you? What is it in you exactly that I have faith in? I'm interpreting that to mean that when he looks at us, what is it that he sees in us? that he can trust. That's the way I read it. I think he's saying, what is it in you that's not ego? He's saying, what is it in you that I trust? Yeah, that would not be King Lear, be John Smith. He trusts John Smith, not King Lear. (laughs) What he's saying is, I trust you. You as John Smith, yeah. Not you as King Lear. It makes sense to me. Because we can say that we're trustworthy, but then when a situation comes up where we're challenged, 
then maybe we're not trustworthy. But what is it in us that is really trustworthy? Yeah. There is something is what I'm hearing. Yes, yes. Recently, I was in a conversation where we were discussing this idea of trust. And as people were speaking, what we finally got to was that the level of trust we were speaking to was circumstantial. And I realized that there's some people in that group that I would trust my life to, but not my money. There are certain people I would trust my life to, but I would not trust my money to. Yeah. So this basic trust seems to be a much, much bigger picture that you're that you're speaking to here. A much well, it's, bigger it's, picture. It's as deep as you can get, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, willing, or willing to go, as almost was saying. That was one of the things I wrote down, the willingness to take the plunge. It seems to me it's not I'm going to take this plunge and find basic trust. Non-duality is a really great philosophy when things are going well. But mm. when tragedy hits, I mean, there's so much tragedy that we see, but when it hits us personally, then our reaction may not be, this is for the greatest good. Our reaction may be something very different from that. And that's a time when we can remember these teachings that you're speaking about. And it seems like there is some volition in that, whether we turn to that or not. And maybe that's just illusion too. Yeah, I don't think we can control whether we can remember what needs to be remembered. You raise what's so complicated about this whole consideration of basic trust. It remembers us. Yeah. And by the way, you don't take the plunge in order to find basic trust. You can't take the plunge unless you have basic trust. That's what allows you to take the plunge. You know, it's like, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for basic trust. Where is this going to come from? It's all very conditional. Well. That's exactly what it's not. That's what distinguishes it from egoic trust. And that's why I took the time to read the descriptions. Well, it brings to mind what Yogi Ramsarat Kumar said when he was attacked in Tiruvannamalai. Would you mind telling that story briefly? Because uh, I'm not oh, familiar with it. Oh, of course. When Yogi Ramsarat Kumar was in Tiruvannamalai, not very long, he was from the north. And of course, people in the south were having political issues with people from the north. <laughs> and so here Yogi Ramsarat Kumar comes and he's wild heretic, you might say. He's the, the unpredictable person who dances spontaneously and sings and chants J. Ram, Sri Ram, J. J. Ram all day long, and people don't understand it. And so they think he's weird and they think he's an outsider. And so some of the people in town who were against him would attack him at various times. They would try to take his bowl or his fan and kick him and hit him and do all these things to him. And at one point, some of the sadhus who were in the area came to him at a time when he was being attacked. They were saying, we need to go get these guys. And they were going to get them. And then Yogi Ram Swarkumar says, no, 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 let this be for me. And one of the sadhus says, well, they'll just come back and do it again if you don't let us go get them and do something. And he said, it's all father. It's okay. It's father's will. And I think of that often, how he sacrificed his own well-being in 
the state of trust and faith. He would not let himself even be protected in the face of it. That's a pretty powerful statement. It's something that really strikes at my heart strings. So there might be a few people here who might not know of Yogi Ram Suraj Kumar. He was an Indian spiritual master who died in 2001. I'm going to leave it with those quotes from those major dudes. And I thank you for your attention and for wrestling with me with this very challenging and confrontational consideration.